we are going to be finishing a series today that is on conflict. So if you're visiting with us, uh, you've chosen a good day to visit here at church because we're capping off uh, about a six-week look at, at conflict. So with that said, would you bow with me and let's pray and then we're going to dive right in. Father God, we are grateful for uh, your goodness and for your grace and for all that you are to us. Uh, Lord, we spent the last uh, few days focusing on gratefulness, hopefully, in our lives and being thankful for the myriad of blessings that have come to us, not the least of which, actually the most of which, is the presence of you and the power of your spirit and the forgiveness of your son uh, in our lives through the gospel. So I pray, God, that as we unpack a little bit of the truth of the gospel now for our lives, especially when it comes to conflict, which we all have, I pray, God, that you would uh, inspire us by your spirit. May we understand the uh, ministry of Jesus rightly and apply these things diligently to our lives because we know we will be better for it and you shall be glorified. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. amen. So here's one of the things that most of us know and have experienced, and that is that in a normal modern day economy, whether it's strong or not, prices almost always tend to go up. You and I have all experienced that. Prices during our lifetime, given enough time, uh, tend to go up. I, I was kind of reminded of that this week when I, I looked up prices in the year that I was born, 1964. That was 50 years ago. In 1964, a brand new Chevrolet Impala cost $2,295. I looked it up at Chevy's website this week, and a brand new Impala now is $27,000 for a base model. That's more than an 11-fold increase just in my lifetime. In 1964, apples were 19 cents for a three-pound bag. Uh, can you imagine? In 1964, uh, a Simmons Imperial mattress cost $39.99. I bought a mattress when I moved here to Scottsdale, paid about 1200 bucks for it. I couldn't believe it. In 1964, a Black & Decker grill, a drill cost $14.95, and the average daily newspaper was $0.07. Cents. I mean, just imagine what things cost when some of you were young. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you thought I meant. The reality is, is that no matter how old you are, even if you're 20 or 30, let alone 80 or 90, you've noticed during your lifetime that things go up. And I believe this is why many of us tend to find ourselves saying that life is expensive. I hear people say that a lot. You have a kid, you say life is expensive. You make a move, you say life is expensive. You go into retirement, you say life is expensive. All of us have this sense that life is costly, and sure enough, uh, things do tend to go up. Things tend to cost more over time. Now, why is that important? Because here's what God says about our relationships. He says, if you think that life is expensive... When you enter into the realm of relationship with those that you love, whether it be a friend, a spouse, a kid, a coworker, a fellow church member, they are costly. They are expensive. Relationships take work, and they come at a high cost. And one of the things that we have been seeing in the series that we're in is that one of the costs of relationship. Uh, one of the downsides, if you will, if you're ever going to move close to another person or draw close to another person, is that you're going to have conflict. That one of the high costs of relationship is this thing called conflict. And you can't avoid it. 
If you dare to draw close to another person, you will at times enter into the tunnel of chaos, that infamous place between point A and point B that you journey with a spouse or a kid or a dear friend or a family member in which there's conflict where you don't see eye to eye, emotions are running wild, and things either get worked out or, as we'll talk about in a little bit, people tend to bail out. So we've been exploring conflict in this series of messages here at Scottsdale Bible this fall, and you might remember, too, that we've been using simply one chapter, now a little bit into another, out of the Bible, Mark chapter 2, and now a little bit into chapter 3, where Jesus himself, the perfect incarnate Son of God, who was unable to have conflict within himself, within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all of eternity, came to this fallen world. And right away in Mark chapter 2, he has five bouts of conflict with people around him. So we've been exploring what conflict is about through looking at the life of Jesus. And you might remember last week, we started to finish up this series, and I'm just going to do a very, very quick review right now so that we're all on the same page, by simply noting a couple things. We noted simply that conflict is a high-cost, high-risk endeavor. You can't avoid it, but we needed to understand that when we enter into conflict with other people, there's a lot at stake. Give me a click here on the screen there. That there's a lot at stake. That the very nature of conflict makes it so that we're in rather dangerous territory where the relationship is either going to go really deep or it's going to get threatened. So we started to talk about what do we do in response to conflict. And we looked at a story in Mark chapter 3 about Jesus and him having conflict. And we started to note three things. And we looked at just one last week and then we're going to look at the other two this week. The first thing we noted last week is that what Jesus did in response to conflict, and many of you found this life-giving, is that he utilized the full relational arsenal that God had given him. That's the first thing that Jesus did. In other words, in response to conflict, he got upfront, close, and personal with those that he was having conflict with, and then he got dialogical with them, he started to talk with them, and then he also shared his heart with them. And we noted that you and I tend to do the opposite, that we tend to want to distance ourselves when we have conflict, we get really technical with people, and we share their bad behaviors rather than what we see Jesus doing here in a highly relational way. And so this threefold progression that we looked at was very life-giving. But then we ended and I found this kind of humorous, on a little bit of a bummer last week where we noted that though this scenario does work in many settings, this threefold progression of getting very relational, it didn't work for Jesus in Mark chapter 3. In other words, in the story that we're going to look at here in just a minute, he got very upfront, close and personal, dialogical, sharing his heart with the people that he was having conflict with, but it didn't work. And we noted that in other scenarios, it did work for Jesus, but we simply made the point that it's not foolproof, that it's not a magic bullet when dealing with conflict, that it's the first step to be relational, but there's other things we can try as well. So the question that I want to wrestle, I want us to wrestle with this morning then is, what do we do when unleashing the full relational arsenal at our disposal? in responding to conflict, doesn't yield the results that we're looking for. What do we do when our upfront, close and personal, followed by meaningful dialogue, capped off by sharing our heart with others, doesn't work? 
what do we do then? And Jesus goes on in our story to show us, and it's going to kind of surprise you what he does next. So here's the second thing Jesus did in navigating the conflict that was turning out to come at a high cost, and that is that he teaches us to delicately balance authentic conviction with humble reasoning. I'm going to explain what we mean by this in a minute, but let me repeat that. The second thing Jesus shows us to do after we get very relational with those around us is to delicately balance authentic conviction with humble reasoning. Now, what's that about? I want you to now turn with me, if you brought your own Bible, to Mark chapter 3. We're going to park pretty much in front of this story that we started last week for our time today. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. We put the scripture on your outline and your bulletin, or as always, you can see it on your monitor. Let's review very briefly what's happening in this story. Jesus is in the synagogue trying to hash it out with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And the issue before them is why Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Uh, one of the great commandments of old in the Old Testament is that you don't work on the Sabbath. And for the Jewish religious leaders, that meant doctors as well. So they forbade people to heal, to cure on the Sabbath. If you were sick on Saturday, it had to wait till Sunday. And that was the rule that the Pharisees had. But Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath. And this created conflict with his religious culture. And so in verses 3 and 4, Jesus calls an anonymous man to come near him, a man that the story tells us who has a withered hand. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, maybe polio or stroke, blood flow had gotten lost to this guy's hand, and it had withered over the years. And so Jesus calls this guy to himself, and he heals him right there on the Sabbath. And before he does, he asks the religious leaders in a highly relational way, sharing his heart, again, we looked at this last week, this question, look at verse 4. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? In other words, he's basically saying to the Pharisees, am I really wrong for wanting to help someone find freedom from his or her affliction in the presence of God in church on the Sabbath? Or should we leave this poor guy in his distress one more day? In other words, Jesus is dialoguing with the Pharisees, getting up front, close, and personal, asking them a leading question, and sharing his heart in the process. And notice that it doesn't work. For the very next line in verse 4 says this, but they were silent. And the connotation is stone-faced, arms crossed, inwardly stubborn, silent. You can picture it. You've had people be like this in your life. So what do you do then? What do you do when a reasonable resolve uh, to, to resolve conflict, a reasonable attempt, attempt to resolve conflict, results in heels dug in and meets with stubbornness. Well, look at what Jesus does next in verse 5. This is very interesting. It says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And now, folks, this is very, very interesting what Jesus does here. After he attempts to resolve this conflict in a highly relational way, and it doesn't work, what he does next, don't miss this, is that without equivocation and with dogged determination, he stays the course in his conviction 
that it is good and right to help others on the Sabbath, and then he even acts upon it by healing this man right then and there. It's important that you see this. He doesn't back off in some mealy-mouthed, people-pleasing mode. He doesn't hem and haw and give some politically correct, half-baked apology. No, he falls back on his conviction right in the midst of this conflict, and then he acts upon it by healing this distressed man. That's Jesus' response to his first attempt that failed at resolving conflict with the Pharisees. And did you notice as well that in not caving in on his conviction, he also shares authentically, and I would argue appropriately, his feelings with them. It says there in verse 5 that he looked at them with anger and was grieved at their hardness of heart. In other words, Jesus allowed himself to feel anger at the injustice of their legalism and how they put the people in kind of a harsh place, even on the Sabbath. And he allowed himself to feel grief, sadness, and disappointment that they were so dense and couldn't see this. He didn't deny what he felt. He allowed himself to feel it and then demonstrate it or show it in appropriate ways. This is what I call authentic conviction. That's what Jesus is showing us here, that he's authentically digging his own heels in, showing the Pharisees that he is clinging to truth and that even out of love for them, they need to see this. He's navigating conflict by not caving in, and he moves forward in his conviction fueled by authentic feelings as well. And this is the pattern, interestingly, that Jesus sets And so obviously, what he's suggesting here, I think, is that it's obviously appropriate at times once we have utilized our full relational arsenal in trying to resolve conflict with those around us to follow it up at times by standing by our convictions and authentically sharing our feelings as a follow-up measure, especially when we sense or feel that we are right and justified in our position. Jesus does that here, and we learn it from him. And so I think it goes out saying what we're saying here is that there are times where you're going to have conflict, say, with an unfair boss, or say, with a stubborn teenager. You ever had conflict with a stubborn teenager? And you try to be really relational at first, and you try to show him or her that you're reasoning with them, and you get up front close and personal, and you dialogue, and you share your heart, and it doesn't work. And so there's going to be times where you respond to that kind of conflict by saying, okay, I've tried it this way, but I'm going to stand firm. And I'm going to show you by standing firm that I really mean business here because I believe I am right And humbly and authentically, I'm going to stand by my conviction. I remember years ago when I was a a young intern in Chicago, the the church that I was at, the pastor one day shared very, I thought, honestly and vulnerably about a conflict he was having at that time with his then uh, teenage daughter. And it was interesting how he responded. He never told us what the issue was, the conflict he was having, but he, he shared how he sat down with his teenage daughter and he said, I got... I got some bad news for you, and it's twofold. And he said, the bad news is essentially this, that you're not going to win with the conflict that we're having right now. And because you're not going to win, it's going to be a very long six months for you. But he said, at the end of it, I promise you, someday you will thank me for it. 
At, what was he doing there? He was basically responding to the conflict after he tried to reason with his daughter by saying, I'm standing firm. Out of love for you, I believe that what I'm doing is right, and with authentic conviction, I'm going to stand firm here. And guys, that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. As a follow-up measure to initially trying to be relational, he responds to conflict with authentic conviction. Now, here, however, is the danger with this point, and we need to spend a few minutes on this, because I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, sweet, I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to stick to my guns in the conflict that I'm having right now. I'm going to label that person wrong and me right, and I'm going to act in such a way that I'm going to show that to him or her. Pastor says I can do this, and I think I'm going to share some feelings in the process as well. That's how some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking about this scenario in which you're in conflict, and you're saying, I've tried to be relational. And what you're saying Jesus did is that he tried to be relational, and then when that didn't work, he just stuck to his guns. And though that is, in a sense, what I think Jesus is doing here, I want to share with you two things as a follow-up to this, two very critical things that you and I need to process as we follow Jesus here. Here's the first one, and that is that there's a big difference between conviction and stubbornness, <laughs> and Jesus navigated this difference perfectly. You see, you have to remember something as we look at this story about Jesus here and as we learn from him. Jesus, is, as I suggested to you earlier, is the perfect, non-sinning, always discerning Son of God. So think about it. There is no room ever for stubbornness in Jesus' soul. God has existed, this is maybe for another sermon, but God has existed as a trinity for all of eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relationality with himself. And trust me, from what the scriptures tell us, there was never any type of dissonance, conflict, or stubbornness within the trinity. And so when Jesus came to this earth as the perfect incarnate Son of God, he was incapable of having fleshly, human-based, sinful stubbornness. The only thing Jesus could be capable of would be godly conviction. We know that about Jesus. But let me ask you, are you the sinless, perfect, always discerning Son of God? I can help you with that answer. No. Do you always respond to conflict out of divinely positioned conviction? Or are there times, be honest with yourself, that human-based stubbornness gets in, now don't miss this, and masks itself as conviction? See, I think we know the answer to that. I think there are times that you and I think we are being men and women of conviction when in all reality, because we're fallen, because we're human, because we're capable of self-deception, we're really just being stubborn. How do you tell the difference? Let me help you with this. Conviction is marked by two things. Conviction is marked by well-thought-out reason and non-entangled emotional strength. You note-takers are going to want to write that down. Let me repeat that. Conviction is, is marked by well-thought-out reason and non-entangled emotional strength. So conviction is an internal resolve and a strength that we develop when we have objectively, clearly, and honestly thought through the stance that we are taking and are convinced that we are right. 
But even then, if we're going to pass the test of conviction, we need to realize that conviction is fueled by an energy that is not unduly motivated by things like insecurity, revenge, unresolved hurt, or any other form of past emotional baggage that lies within the human heart. Conviction checks that stuff and realizes that it has no room for that. And so Jesus, this is why I say, was consistently a man of conviction. Well thought out, humble reasoning based on truth and non-entangled emotional strength. This is what we see going on with him and the Pharisees here. He is objectively right. They had added man-made rules to the Sabbath and they were wrong. They, they were not rules that were meant for everybody. Jesus knew what the Sabbath was about and that it was okay to heal on the Sabbath. So when he shows conviction here, he's correct in doing so. It's just that you and I are not always correct. Because here's what stubbornness is. <laughs> stubbornness is tricky. It's the opposite of conviction, but it's actually an evil twin. It looks a lot like conviction. Stubbornness is usually irrational in its approach, self-justified, while those around you don't follow your logic, but you think you're being completely logical. That's stubbornness. It's when you're trying to make your case, you're trying to make your argument with somebody around you, and they don't get it, so you go home and you start saying the same thing to your spouse, and he or she gives you that deer-in-the-headlights look. And then you call your best friend, and you start to talk to him or her about it, and they're kind of quiet on the other end. And eventually you go, I think what's logical to me isn't logical to people around me, even those I trust, and so hence maybe I'm being stubborn. And even more so, stubbornness is fueled by entangled emotions. You can tell you're being stubborn when you have feelings of hurt, even hatred, desire for retribution, and a general sense of insecurity, where you don't feel centered and secure. And the point is, is that fallen human beings can so easily confuse stubbornness for conviction. We label our stubbornness as godly conviction, and Christians do it all the time. And when we do, we have no right to do what Jesus is doing here in Mark 3. We have no right to respond to conflict by resisting to cave in on our convictions, which is really stubbornness, because what we're really doing is digging our heels in on what the Bible calls our flesh, rather than being guided, as Jesus was, by the Spirit. This is why I say, in applying what we see Jesus doing here, that we need to delicately balance, I chose my words very carefully here, delicately balance the authentic conviction that we see in Jesus with a humility, a humble reasoning in which we ask God, is this really conviction? In which we ask our spouse, is this really conviction? In which we ask close friends that we trust and we know won't just tell us what we want to hear, is this really conviction? And when we do, that we can follow Jesus here, but many times you're going to find that it's really stubbornness. This happens to me all the time. I mean, I'm I, I trying to think of a story I could tell you, and there's just so many I wouldn't know where to start, because almost weekly I experience this, guys. I'm a passionate leader, so it would not be unusual for me to come home at the end of the day 
And as Kim and I process our days, we do that regularly as we uh, uh, join up. We both work full-time as we join up at the end of the day. It would not be unusual for me to unload a little bit on her and say, let me tell you what happened today. Let me tell you what so-and-so did and what, what, what letter I got from some person in the congregation and things like that. And I'll, I'll just kind of process and unload on her. And sometimes she'll say to me, boy, Jamie, you're right. I can't believe all the things you have to deal with. And then there's other times where, honestly, because my wife has always lived by this motto. She's always said, and this is great, she's always said, I'd rather give you insecurity than false security. She'd always rather tell me the truth than let me just be mired in my own self-justification. So there's other times where she'll look at me and say, well, I'm wondering, why are you so defensive about that? Don't you see the other person's point? Don't you think you're overreacting just a little bit? And she'll push back. And I'll realize before I know it that all day I thought I was living by conviction when really there was just some stubbornness in my soul. Can you own that? And you see, the reason that's so important is, think about it, guys. If I didn't process my day each night like that, and I came in the next day, and responded to some of that conflict by saying, well, I'm a man of conviction, and so I'm going to stand by my truth, and I'm going to stand by my guns, and I just get rock hard with, say, a staff person or a lay person in the church, I'm telling you, based on that fleshly response, it's not going to work. There is times where authentic conviction is a good response to conflict. Jesus shows us this, but we need to make sure that it's authentic conviction or the whole thing is going to fall apart. And so the first thing we need to do before we follow Jesus here in his model in navigating conflict is do an honest gut check and ask ourselves, is this more about a God-honoring, authentic conviction, or is it a human-based stubbornness? You've got to be honest with yourself. And as you're chewing on that, a second thing you might want to deeply consider before refusing to cave in on your convictions is this. And this is going to seem weird, but it's very, very helpful. And that is you need to realize that there's a huge cost for refusing to cave in on your conflicts, Jesus, or on your, on your conviction. Jesus shows us this, and it eventually costs Jesus his life. Now, now why do we note that? I want you to try to follow the reasoning here. I'm not suggesting that you cave in on your conviction simply because it will cost you. You guys know me. I would never suggest that. That's not truth living. That's not the way Christians have ever responded. So I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting, however, is that what we see in Jesus is that he did count the cost. He said a guy doesn't put his hand to the plow and look back, but he, he counts the cost. And, and that by realizing the cost that awaits you for being a man or woman of conviction, it does help you to analyze where your conviction is coming from and is it really worth it. In other words, I've found that, that, that many times by standing by your conviction, it might work. People might fall down and call you blessed and say, I see your point. But, but there's other times where, again, we're going to see with Jesus here, where even though you stood by your conviction, even though it was right, it didn't resolve the conflict. Again, as we're going to see in a second here, it's not foolproof. We'll give you the foolproof thing here in just a minute, but that's not foolproof. And, and, and so realizing that, realizing that once again there's a high cost for unavoidable conflict helps us kind of gather enough information to ask ourselves, are we really willing to stand by this one? You see, that's what I think my, my friend did, going back to that illustration with his teenage daughter. 
He, again, he never told us what the issue was, but he realized that, that if he allowed his daughter to go down the road she was going down, and he made it sound pretty serious, that, that it was going to be a pretty bad road. So, so he was willing to take the hit by digging his heels in and being a man of conviction in response to conflict there, knowing, and he was probably right, that it was going to be a long six months, knowing that it was going to be a difficult six months. And I think that there's truth in that, that as you and I consider following Jesus here, that we need to really ask ourselves, is it worth the cost? Is my conviction really that solid? Uh, Ray Blount Jr. is a PBS celebrity, an author, and wrote a book a little while back called Long Time Leaving. It was a reflection of what life was like for him growing up in the South. And, and at one point in his book, he said something I found kind of humorous. Maybe you won't find it humorous, but I think it's instructive for us. Listen to what he says in his book. <clears throat> he says, I never heard anybody say when I was growing up, uh, what would Jesus do? He says, we knew Jesus would most likely do what he did do. Something crazy by community standards, some far-out, liberal, crucifiable offense, something we weren't about to do. Now, I want you to think about what he's saying here, because some of you don't like it because it uses that word liberal in there, and that word doesn't usually go well with Scottsdale Bible Church. But the reality is, is that I think Ray Blount Jr. is on to something here. What's he getting at here? See, we, we so easily throw on a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? And that was a big trend back in the 90s in the last century to, to wear that bracelet and just say, I'm going to do what Jesus does. But what we need to understand is that there have been other cultures, even the first century culture, that kind of trembled when they asked that question. When they asked the question, what would Jesus do? They realized after reading the gospel stories, after seeing Jesus, that, that you might not, or you might want to at least count the cost of following him in the things that he did. Because Jesus didn't toe the conservative line in his culture. He did do far-out crazy things that went against the grain of the entire culture around him. And so people over the centuries have been very careful when they counter the cost of following Jesus and asking themselves, what would Jesus do? Because eventually Jesus was crucified for what he did. And that's the point, folks. We are indeed to follow Jesus' example here. We are indeed to follow him after relationality doesn't work at times by standing by our convictions, especially when it's motivated by godliness and not stubbornness, and even to share what we're feeling. Uh, but by so doing, you need to recognize that that too might come at a high cost. That following Jesus here means that you're following a guy, as Jesus says, that doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And so part of the humble reasoning that you and I need to ask ourselves here, counting the cost, is are we really willing to take the hit for what we're about to do in the conflict that we're in? I think it's a good thing to ask. It continues to put a check on your soul. Now, as we follow Jesus here, it's interesting what happens next. Let's wrap this thing up. You're going to be kind of surprised. Because like we found in utilizing and unleashing our full relational arsenal in response to conflict, when you then balance it out with authentic uh, conviction and humble reasoning, what we find is that sometimes this works and sometimes it doesn't. In other words, there will be times that people sense your godly conviction whether it's a spouse that you're having conflict with, or as we've seen a kid, 
or an unfair boss at work. I mean, I can think of multiple scenarios where there will be times where people sense your conviction and it turns the tide and they go, gosh, thank you for being a man of, or woman of conviction. I see your point. But then there's going to be other times where they don't see at all what you're saying and they're going to pull farther away. And we all know this. There are times this works and there are times it doesn't. So my question, my final question to you in this series is what do we do when the full strength of our relational arsenal followed up by authentic conviction combined with humble reasoning fails to bridge the divide? What do you do then? And here's the awesome thing. Jesus has one last rather foolproof spiritual and relational trait that he shows us that, get this, almost always works in navigating conflict to a healthy resolve. But I want to warn you right now, you're going to have a love-hate relationship with this trait if you already don't, because it's the core trait of what it means to be a Christian, and it's your ace in the hole when it comes to responding to conflict. And here it is, that in the end, you engage your ace in the hole, which is forgiveness. Tell me you didn't see that one coming. You engage your ace in the hole as a follow of Je- follower of Jesus, which is forgiveness. You see, guys, here's the deal. Jesus spent his entire three years of public ministry, now don't miss this, mired in unavoidable conflict. As we've seen in this series, it was unavoidable because he was doing his father's will. It was unavoidable because he stood by his convictions, and it was better to please God than to please man. It was unavoidable because this is a fallen world that the Son of God had entered into, and in a fallen world, God makes it really clear that bad things happen to good people, even bad things happen to God's people. And so Jesus had conflict. And when the conflict that Jesus was embroiled in could not be resolved, by the full relational arsenal that he brought, even by standing by his convictions and humbly communicating that, Jesus chose to forgive. And his forgiveness extended all the way to the cross and even through the cross. And get this, it even extended to those that he was in the most embattled conflict with. If you don't believe me, I want you to look at a, a passage that, again, I don't hear too many Christians quote very often, but it's one of the more profound passages in all of the New Testament. I told you we we're going to look at one other passage other than Mark 3. Look at Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus, at this point, is hanging on the cross, suffering and dying, at least from a human level, due to the conflict that he had had with the Jewish and the Roman authorities. And as the guards hoisted him up and left him there to die, This is what the text says. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Folks, don't miss the profundity of what's going on here. Jesus is praying to God the Father. Again, it's a trinity we're talking about. God the Son to God the Father for their eternal forgiveness and salvation. Now, commentators wrestle with who is the they. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, at the very least, we know it was the guards, right? Because the guards were the one who put him on the cross. But what most Bible experts point out is that it was also probably the Jewish and Roman authorities who were the ones that also were responsible for putting him on the cross. And so he's praying to God, 
that forgiveness would come their way, that their sins would not be held against them, that we know by connotation that God would then draw them to himself through faith and belief, which is the pathway to forgiveness that would secure their eternal salvation. Jesus pleads with the Father to bring forgiveness their way, thus living what he taught us, that it is better to forgive and love our enemies than the opposite. He modeled forgiveness as the ultimate way to deal with conflict. You see, folks, this is why I've said, uh, I started to say this last week, that there's a difference in the series that we're in between what I call conflict resolution and what I call conflict navigation. You see, our, our world today, our culture, and this is not a bad thing, is all about conflict resolution. If you've had conflict with somebody around you and you go to a therapist or get on Amazon.com and try to find a good book or talk to a friend or even go to church and hear a great series on conflict, what you're going to find is that there's lots of good principles out there, truths, many of them even found in the Bible, that help us toward conflict resolution. And as we've seen in this series, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I mean, this is what our world does. We want to resolve conflict. But let me ask you as you're thinking about that, what does our culture tell you to do when and if you can't work it out? I want you to think about that. I mean, what does it say to do if after trying everything you know to do, it doesn't work? You see, here's what I find our culture usually says, though they might not say it this starkly. Blow it off. Write the other person off. Have nothing to do with him or her. Get them out of your life. Set a boundary and leave that person behind. So our culture essentially says try for conflict resolution, but if that doesn't work, move on and prioritize yourself. Because love of self is the greatest love that one can have. That's what most people today think. But what you need to know is that that's not the Jesus way. Jesus was more about conflict navigation than he was conflict resolution. Because he knew that sometimes conflict could be resolved like it was with Peter and like it was with many other people he rubbed shoulders with, but sometimes it couldn't be resolved. But no matter what, he knew that it could always be navigated. It can always be navigated in the way that God the Father wants us to. Please hear this, guys. God is much more concerned that we, as children of him, through his son Jesus, learn to navigate conflict in such a way that sometimes it will lead to resolve as we apply the things we've learned in this series, but sometimes it won't lead to resolve, but that's when we play our final card. And that our final card as children of light is to follow Jesus and his example by forgiving those who deeply hurt and offend us and by forgiving them, which is basically letting it go and not holding it against them, look out as to what might happen next. Because I'm telling you, 99 times out of 100, you will completely stun those around you if you forgive them as the end goal of the conflict that you're having with them. Even if you have to agree to disagree, I, I promise you, if you can look them in the eye and with deep Christian sincerity, say, you know what? I love you in the name of Jesus. I, I, I pray every day that this relationship won't go south, and you need to know that as far as I'm concerned, I don't hold this against you. I'm going to let it go. I forgive you. You will be stunned how often that works.
But I'm stunned at how not so often I see Christians ever do that. I'm not here to shame us, but it does stun me how when the core of our Christian faith is that God has forgiven us, how Christians so rarely forgive others. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I mean forgive them about big things. We can all forgive about little things. I mean, some of you are proud that you're driving down the 101 and somebody cuts you off and you go, I can let that go. Well, big whip. I, I mean, honestly, honestly, not a big deal. Or you come home and you ask the spouse, you know, to pick up a gallon of milk and it's not there and you go, I think I'll be godly and let that one go. Not a big deal. But how about when you have a 20-year-old feud with a family member and you don't even want to be with him and her, and you dig deep, you dig deep into your faith in Jesus Christ, and you realize how much he has forgiven you for something a lot more than a 20-year-old feud. How about all of your sin that separates you for all of eternity from God, and how he forgave you of that, and out of digging deep there, you say, you know what, this 20-year-old feud, I'm going to be the first one to let it go. I'm not holding it against him or her. Let bygones be bygones. I'm going to free that person up and love him or her authentically. And when they come back at me and say, well, you really haven't forgiven me. You're probably dwelling on this and keeping it. And you over time say, no, I'm really not. I I need to let you know I'm so free in Jesus. I am so free with what he's done for my soul that honestly, I I can let this go. I can love you. you. You don't have that much power over me because Jesus is my power source, not you. And so I can let this go and love you freely. Guys, you'd be stunned what an ace in the hole that is in dealing with conflict. There have been conflict that I've I've had for years with people. Again, I'm just as human as you guys. And it was only in the last few years where, again, that 20-year-old feud that I, I had with one of our family members, an extended family member, I finally got to the point in my Christian maturity where honestly I could let it go. And that family member was visiting here a few years back here in Scottsdale with us and and that family member made a comment to one of the other family members upon leaving our, our house. You know, Jamie's a different guy, and uh, our relationship is different. And she, she didn't even know why. She didn't even know what it was. Uh, but I know what it was. I finally let it go. I, I finally said, you know, I've tried to be relational. I've tried to work through these things. I, you can't always do that. I mean, that's what you should try first. But at the end of the day, you and I are followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, the core thing that we do is forgive. And again, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, oh, Jamie, I, I can't. I mean, it's easier said than done. Forgiveness is hard. Listen, guys, of course it's hard. It's one of the hardest things you ever have to do. I mean, honestly, to truly forgive and let go of a hurt that somebody's committed against you, of course it's hard. And the only way that I have ever found to be able to forgive somebody, and I've already hinted at this, honestly, is to draw close to God, ask him to forgive through me. I literally say to God, I don't have it in me. I don't have it in my flesh. You have to forgive through me. And then he bathes me with the sense of his forgiveness of me. And through getting in touch with that, with the grace that's been shown me, somehow there's a power within me to then forgive others. And it does take time. And it takes a lot of spiritual work. That's the only way I've ever found to be able to forgive. One last closing illustration. As many of you know, I come from uh, Cleveland, uh, Ohio. <laughs> and, uh, and, and outside of Cleveland, there's a huge Amish community. One of them's in Middlefield. The other one's down in Holmes County where my, my parents live. And, you know, a lot of Americans don't know what to make of Amish. They are kind of a strange community. They, they don't live a lifestyle anywhere commensurate with us. They certainly have a lot of problems uh, in the Amish community. They're, they're not perfect. But stemming out of the Anabaptist tradition, they are a community in which faith and faith in Jesus is core. 
Some of you might remember back in 2006, October of 2006, a guy named Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse and he dismissed all the kids but 10 girls. And out of anger at the Amish community, he proceeded to shoot all 10 girls and he fatally killed five of them. And five of them survived. It was an Amish massacre that made, obviously, the national news. It was in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. The Amish community responded in a way that would eventually get the attention of all the news media because they did something that our world just never sees. Uh, about a week later, this man, Charles Roberts, killed himself uh, at that same schoolhouse. And about a week later, at his funeral, uh, half the attenders at this funeral were Amish. Half the attenders. And they weren't there in some type of protest like we're seeing in Ferguson right now or something like that. They, they were there because they wanted to communicate to the widow, even the ones who lost their daughters, that they forgive this man for what he did. And they wanted to assure the widow that they forgive her for anything involved in that as well. At U.S. News and World Report was so blown away by this, and eventually some authors were so blown away by that there's actually been entire books written on this about how the Amish could forgive something like that. Uh, Dan Donald Craybill, who teaches us at Elizabethtown College near Nickel Mines, said this in an interview to try to explain how this forgiveness actually worked. He said, and I quote, to a person, the Amish would argue that forgiveness is central to the teaching of Jesus. They take the Lord's Prayer literally that you need to forgive us, God, of our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. You see, you can say what you want to about the Amish, but when you imbue the Christian gospel long enough into a community, eventually they understand that the core of our faith is to forgive and to let go, even in the midst of awful tragedy and awful conflict. So what's my prayer for Scottsdale Bible Church and all our campuses? that we would be the type of community that is so centered on the gospel of Jesus, which is his forgiveness, but which is the fact that he came to save us from our sin, that it would actually translate into our relationships around us. And that though we try for conflict resolution by being as relational as we can, upfront, close and personal, dialogical, sharing our heart, at times we're even gonna show our conviction and hopes that people will see that at the end of the day, whether any of that works or not, you and I are men and women of forgiveness. Why? Because we've been forgiven. And as Jesus says, to him who has been given much, much will be expected. Let's chew on that as we go into the, th the, the Christmas season. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the amazing gospel that we've been given in Jesus Christ, that we're about to celebrate the core of this Christmas season. The fact that you sent Jesus into this very sinful, dark, and fallen world so that we might find hope, so that we might find love, so that we might find grace. And Lord, that we might find forgiveness and eternity for our very souls. And Lord, I know that there's ugliness and stubbornness and stuff that still resides in our very hearts. As the Bible says, we battle the flesh versus the spirit every moment of every day. But Lord, I also know we have the Holy Spirit who lives in us and enables us to have victory, even victory in the big things like conflict. And so, Father, I pray for these dear folks here as well as at our campuses and venues that, God, you would, uh, as we personalize these things to our own lives, that you help us to be men and women of conviction who believe your gospel and believe your truth and draw so very close to you so that the grace we experience is the grace that we pass on.
And God, we can't wait to see what you do as a result of this. Bless us, we pray. Make us happy in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.